Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're having a chat about Harold Hadrada, one of history's most famous Vikings and also one of the very last. Last week, while talking about Canute the Great, I, I hinted at Harold Hadrada's role in the history of, of Norway, Denmark and England after Canute's death. And today we are going to explore that role fully. We're going to talk about how Harold, as a mighty Viking warrior, helped to shape the history of this region and indeed, more broadly, the world. Harald Hadrada became the king of Norway after spending many years in exile, fighting in places and for causes that you just will not believe. And while doing this, he amassed a gigantic fortune, became extremely wealthy. So by the time he was ready to head back home to Scandinavia and contest the Norwegian throne, he was in a very bloody good position to do it. Years of campaign experience, unbelievable amounts of money. It shouldn't be a surprise that Harold was able to claim the Norwegian throne as he sought to. However, his ambitions to reforge the North Sea Empire built by Canute the Great were ultimately thwarted, as we will talk about. And worse still, his invasion of England was an unmitigated disaster for Harold, uh, as we've talked about before on the show, not only did he lose the famous Battle of Stamford Bridge, he also lost his life while fighting it. Harold's invasion of England was the last ever large-scale Viking invasion, the last time in history that Vikings ever meaningfully attempted to impose their military might on a region external to Scandinavia. And while Harold himself wasn't single-handedly responsible for the end of the Viking Age, his death is still largely used as a, as a sort of marker point to delineate the end of the era of the Vikings. He was one of the very last of them, as we'll talk about, as we get across his life story, as we talk about the adventures he had, what kind of person he was, not, not a very nice one, I don't think, and, of course, what his ultimate fate and legacy was. So, thanks to all the alert listeners who have written in requesting an episode on Harold Hadrada, Frank Sherwood, Tobias Jesper Anderson... And then other alert listeners got in touch just asking for some more Viking history in general. So Courtney Harris, Justin Dow, Magnus Heliskov, hope that this sates the appetite for all of you. Uh, great to hear from all of you, of course. Cheers to everyone uh, getting in touch. Love it. Anyway, lots to get across today as ever, so let's get into it. Here we go with the story of Harold Hadrada, the last great Viking. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to 1015 to Norway, where young Harold was born to Sigurd Seer, a local petty king, and his wife, Oster Gudbrandsdatter. Oster was, uh, was also the mother of someone else that we met last week, uh, someone else we had a chat about very briefly, Olaf II, Harold's half-brother. Uh, he became the king of Norway around the time of Harold's birth. There were, there were, there were 20 years between these two boys. Uh, Oster had had Olaf with, uh, with a different bloke earlier on, a previous marriage. Anyway... When I say that uh, that Harold's dad, Sigurd Sio, was a uh, was a petty king, don't think of him as being you know, a great warrior or a, or, a, or a mighty Viking warlord, anything like that. No, he did own a lot of land and he had both a, a fair bit of wealth and a fair bit of political clout. But for the most part, he largely led a very peaceful and modest life, personally tending to his lands and his farms himself. Very well-respected bloke, um, but despite his position as a minor noble, he was much more focused on farming than he was 
on seeking out power or chasing down glory or anything like that. And his older two sons were as well, but not young Harold, who even as a youngster seemed to be cut from the same cloth as his half-brother Olaf, the mighty king of Norway. But then, as you may remember from last week, Olaf was overthrown by Canute the Great as king of Norway in 1028. And when Olaf limped back to his family, to his mum, um, his young half-brother eagerly tried to help him reclaim the throne that he'd lost. In 1030, when Harold was just 15 years old, he helped to muster a force of 600 men to march against Canute's forces and seize back the crown of Norway. He and Olaf bravely took the fight to a man who was, as we talked about last week, the second most powerful ruler in Christendom and, perhaps unsurprisingly, Harold and Olaf had their asses handed to them on a silver platter in the Battle of Stiklestad. Olaf was killed and Harold was injured and forced into exile. He's only 15, but that's it for him. He can't stay in Norway. He fled east across Norway to recover from his injuries and then travelled with his men through Sweden and into the Kievan Rus in modern-day Russia. He had a distant relative there, a woman named Ingegerd Olafsdotter, who just so happened to be married to Grand Prince Yaroslav the Wise, the ruler of the Kievan Rus. And I tell you what, Harold's timing couldn't have been better when it came to his arrival in the Kievan Rus because Yaroslav's military was in need of a bit of bolstering. And here comes this hothead teenager with a few hundred men in tow, obviously knows his way around a sword, and he's got the fire and the fury of the Vikings, just like his wife. Perfect mate, absolutely perfect. Come in, make yourself comfortable. Yaroslav, very happy to have Harold and his men along. He welcomes them warmly, asks them if they might just happen to be interested in doing a little bit of fighting for him. And Harold says, mate, absolutely, we'd bloody love to. You just point us at the people who need sorting out and we will bloody sort them out for you, no bother at all. Over the next couple of years, Harold was a steadfast and true lieutenant for Yaroslav, going off with his horde of Viking warriors, fighting the Poles, the Pechenegs, the Chudes, even the, even the, even the Byzantines, right? Yaroslav would tell them where to go and Harold and his Vikings would go and dish out a proper hiding wherever it was needed and then come back for the next assignment. But it wasn't too long before Harold and his boys were ready to move on to something new. And it's here that the story takes a bit of a turn. Because at this point, right, we're talking about a roving band of exiled Vikings cutting about in northeastern Europe, raiding here and there, doing what Vikings do. They're not that far away from Scandinavia. At this point, it's probably not raising any eyebrows to hear about Vikings gallivanting across modern day Russia. It's not really that far away at all. But worlds are about to collide here when we talk about Harold's next move, because he ended up in a historical setting that we generally don't tend to associate all that much with, you know, Vikings, warriors from the frozen north. Around 1033 or 1034, Harold and his men moved on from the Kievan Rus to, wait for it, Constantinople, the seat of power for the Byzantine Empire. Listeners with particularly sharp memories may remember the cameo that Harold Hadrada had in episode 176 about the Byzantine Empire, about the Byzantine sisters, Zoe and Theodora Porphyrogenita, who ruled the uh, the empire as, as co-empresses. You may remember how we talked about him joining the Varangian Guard, the elite fighters that made up the personal guard of the Byzantine Emperor. And that's just what he did. He 
and about 500 Vikings went south from the realms of Grand Prince Yaroslav to the city that they called Miklagard, Constantinople, today of course known as Istanbul in modern day Turkey. The Varangian Guard was traditionally made up of non-Byzantine warriors so as to ensure that they wouldn't have any local bonds of loyalty that might cause them to betray their emperor. Every single time we've talked about the Byzantines, it has involved plots and schemes and blindings and castrations and all the cutthroat politics that Constantinople was so famous for. And so having your bodyguards be loyal to the position of emperor rather than personally loyal to one particular bloke, well, that took at least one variable out of the messy equation that was Byzantine politics. And from the late 10th century until the late 11th century, the Varangian Guard was almost always composed of Norse warriors, Vikings, which is just wild to think about. Long-haired Norsemen in chainmail protecting the Byzantine emperor, but... That's what used to happen. And once he arrived in Constantinople and sought to join the Varangian Guard, Harold was once again welcomed warmly. He wasn't just some blow-in, some Johnny-come-lately. He was a relative of the former King of Norway, an exiled Viking prince. He was someone with a budding reputation for being a skilled and determined fighter. And then on top of, on top of all of this... He's also a very impressive physical specimen. He's large, he's tall, he's strong. He looks like the sort of bloke that you'd want as a bodyguard. And so he and his men were put to work as members of the Varangian Guard. Although, I will say this, they didn't actually do a lot of guarding of the emperor. Instead, much like during their time in the Kievan Rus, they were mostly sent off to deal with the enemies of the realm. Harold and his men fought pirates in the Mediterranean. They raided the towns that the pirates were from. They went on campaigns against the Pechenegs. They ended up in Jerusalem at one point. Again, a real collision of worlds here. We don't often imagine Vikings hanging out in the Holy Land, but sure enough, Harold was there in around 1036. He certainly was a very well-traveled bloke indeed. Now, what was he doing in the Holy Land, you may ask? Well, we're not 100% sure, and that's because we don't know the exact timing of his visit to Jerusalem. In 1036, the Byzantine Emperor Michael IV signed a peace agreement with the Fatimid Caliph, a kid named Ma'ad al-Mustanzir Billa. And if Harold had visited Jerusalem before this peace agreement, he probably would have been sent there to crack skulls. However, if he visited after the peace agreement had been made, which most historians seem to think is more likely, he was probably escorting Christian pilgrims to Jerusalem, protecting them from bandits and the like on the way. So we don't know. We don't know exactly why he was in Jerusalem, if it was before or after this uh, this peace agreement was made. But we do know that he was there. So quite a funny mental image. Again, the Vikings descending upon Jerusalem like this. Anyway, in 1038, uh, he accompanied a Byzantine expedition to conquest Sicily, fighting alongside not just Byzantines, but also Norman mercenaries. His long lost Viking cousins from the north of France. But this expedition was a failure. The Normans switched sides, the Byzantines got a thrashing, and they had to pull out of Sicily altogether in 1041. Although, by all accounts, Harold acquitted himself very well in the fighting, even if he you know, couldn't help to bring about an ultimate Byzantine victory. Anyway, his final campaign as a member of the Varangian Guard took place that same year, 1041, when he accompanied Michael IV as the emperor took the fight to the Bulgarians. Now, Michael at this stage was not in a good way. He was half paralysed, he couldn't walk, he had dropsy, he was full of gangrene, and people could not believe that he was going to personally go on this trip to Bulgaria. But 
He was in very good company with warriors like Harold by his side, and once again, Harold helped the Byzantines crush their enemies and see them driven before them. Harold did very, very well out of this. He he was hailed as a hero back in Constantinople, and all of his fighting over the years had won him the personal respect and favour of Michael IV, the Byzantine emperor. Michael heaped praise, adulation, fancy titles, and a lot of money on Harold, or Araltes, as he was known to the Byzantines. All of his services in the Varangian Guard were richly rewarded, and Harold became a very wealthy and very well-admired man. But this was not to last, because when Michael IV died later on in 1041, Harold's standing in the Byzantine imperial court fell quite sharply. As you can go and hear about in episode 176, the power struggle between Michael V and Zoe and Theodora Porphyrogenita absolutely consumed the court, and Harold was caught in the crossfire. At one point, he was locked up, potentially accused of defrauding the Byzantine treasury with all the money he'd been paid by Michael IV, although we're not 100% sure of what the charge was. It, it, It could have been something else, whatever it was. It might not have even been legitimate, to be honest. It's thought that Michael IV may have just locked Harold up because he was scared of him. And this fear would have been very well founded, if true, because once Harold got out of prison, either by escaping or by being released, he rejoined the Varangians that stood with Zoe and Theodora against Michael and ended up, probably, although it's actually never been conclusively proven, ended up being the bloke who blinded Michael V's once Zoe and Theodora had seized power. So, yeah, look, maybe Michael V was right to be afraid of this great, big, imposing Viking. Shame for him that Harold not only got out of prison, but also ended up backing the winning horse in Zoe and Theodora. Anyway, by this stage, Harold obviously felt that he'd done all that he needed to do in Constantinople. And so in 1042, he requested permission from the co-empresses to be released from service in the Varangian Guard so he could head back towards home. And Zoe and Theodora thought about it and said, Absolutely bloody not, mate. You can stay right where you are, mister. You think we're letting our best bodyguard and warrior out of our sight? You are stuck here, mate. You you bloody better get used to it. Harold, however, he's not about to be told what to do. He gathered his men and he gathered the considerable wealth that he had collected while serving in the Byzantines and sailed away anyway into the Black Sea before heading up to the court of Yaroslav. Once again, he's still kicking about as the Grand Prince of the Kievan Rus. And I really want to make a point of this, right? Harold was at this point extremely rich. He had done so well for himself while fighting as a member of the Varangian Guard. The the Guard was paid very well already, And it was a tradition for them to receive a sizable bonus whenever an emperor died to assure the loyalty of the guard to the new emperor. And as Harold had been around for the deaths of three emperors, he had absolutely cleaned up. And on top of that, he had been looting and pillaging whenever he'd been sent off on campaigns. And so he had also amassed significant spoils of war. This bloke is rich. I mean, you get it, right? He's extremely well-heeled. I'll, I'll, I'll stop layering the point. Anyway, he and his men, they get back to Yaroslav. They're thrilled to see one another. Harold even ends up marrying Yaroslav's daughter, Elizabeth. So the two obviously got on very, very well indeed. Yaroslav certainly had plenty of reasons to like Harold at any rate. Harold had been shipping his wealth to Yaroslav for years and years for safekeeping. And then once he got back from Constantinople, 
He filled Yaroslav in about the city and its defences, and armed with that information, Yaroslav then went and attacked Constantinople, although his campaign didn't end up going too well. Constantinople, difficult city to attack, although not impossible. Episode 5, Fourth Crusade. Episode 222, The Fall of Constantinople. For more details, get across them. Anyway. Harold spent a little more time uh, in the Kievan Rus with his new bride. And then in 1045, he finally headed back to Scandinavia after 15 years in exile. Gone is the young teenage boy that fled the defeat of his half-brother Olaf. Instead, a strong, tall, battle-hardened warrior returns with a grim determination to claim the kingdom lost by his half-brother all those years ago. And with him came not just a horde of loyal Vikings, but so much gold, apparently, that the ship in which he arrived in Sweden had a tilt to one side. It was so heavily laden down with riches. Harold arrives in Scandinavia to find that Olaf's son, Magnus the Good, Harold's half-nephew, had claimed the Norwegian throne in the wake of the death of Canute the Great. And even better for Magnus, Canute's surviving sons were too busy fighting over England to notice Magnus also claim the Danish throne for himself as well. Magnus is only in his early 20s, but he's done a very good job here. He's done very well for himself. He snagged two kingdoms already, but Harold planned to change that. Doesn't matter that Magnus is his half-nephew as the son of Olaf. Bugger that, says Harold. I want the Norwegian crown for myself. And so he teamed up with the Swedish king, Anna Jacob, and a defeated claimant to the Danish throne, Svein Estridsson, to challenge Magnus. And they did this by raiding the Danish coastline to prove that Magnus wasn't able to properly protect Denmark and that it needed a new king. Magnus gathered his forces and prepared himself for a big scrap with Harold and his allies. But here is where Harold's enormous wealth came into play. Rather than fight for the Norwegian crown, says Harold to Magnus, how about I just buy it off you? Now, Magnus is not completely opposed to this idea. He was apparently very short of coin at the time. And so in exchange for half of Harold's money, Magnus agreed to become co-monarch with him. So very neat here. No bloodshed, although I read about how the two kings absolutely could not stand to be in the same room as each other. They kept separate courts, and on several occasions when they were actually around each other, it nearly came to blows. But look, this deal, it proved to be a very good move for Harold because, get ready, Magnus died. In 1047, he's only 23 years old, and now Harold is the king of Norway in his own right, but not of Denmark. Before he died, Magnus had decreed that Svein, the claimant I mentioned before, the claim that he had defeated, uh, Svein, not Harold, was to inherit Denmark. Now, Harold, not a fan of this plan, wasn't going to take it lying down. He was filled with ambition, full of a burning desire to reforge the North Sea Empire that had, of course, crumbled after the death of Canute. He wanted to reunite the thrones that were being squabbled over and had been for the past decade. And so he proved to be a very fickle ally to Svein, turning on him as soon as Svein inherited the Danish throne from Magnus. Raiding, pillaging, burning, all the classic Viking pastimes. Several pitched battles as well between the two kings on both land and sea. 
But despite Harold and his forces doing very well in attacking Denmark with constant attacks and raids, Svein held on. And if you'll believe it, these two kings fought over the Danish crown for almost 20 years before finally, in 1064 or 1065, they shook hands and decided that enough was enough. They both agreed that it had been a jolly good war, good effort on both sides, and that neither of them had won or lost. After 20 years of fighting, they were both happy to accept the final result as a draw. No change in territory, no punitive reparations, nothing. Despite spending much of his reign over Norway fighting to claim Denmark, Harold never managed it. But what did Harold manage as the king of Norway? Well, in the years after claiming the throne, there's one thing he certainly did. He very much earned his epithet, Hardrada, a clumsy anglicisation of hard ruler, but a term that can also mean ruthless, severe, even tyrannical. Harold was not a nice king. He treated both disgruntled nobles and disgruntled peasants in very much the same way by putting on shows of violent force to demonstrate just how bloody much he meant business. For the nobles, this meant putting them in their place when they attempted to stand up to him and his rule, going so far as to simply murder Norwegian aristocrats that resisted his authority. And he sailed very bloody close to the wind in doing this. His nobles came that close to rising up in rebellion against him, but... Harold had such a firm grip of staunch allies, powerful warriors they were, and of course he had a lot of money behind him, so it would have been a difficult fight for anyone to take. And it was much the same with the peasantry. If peasants were thought to be, for example, withholding taxes from him, his warriors would maim or even just kill them to serve as a warning for others. Hard ruler indeed. Harold used his band of fanatically loyal, battle-hardened warriors to assert and enforce his royal will, resulting in highly concentrated and centralised royal power. And this royal power was backed up, don't forget, by a lot of money. So Harold really was, in many ways, just completely untouchable. Despite this ruthless approach to leadership, or perhaps, honestly, because of it, Norway prospered under Harold, as his reign brought stability back to the realm after very many turbulent years. And in particular, Harold's financial reforms changed Norway forever, as he instituted an official coin economy with royally minted Norwegian coins, which entered Norway into the world of international trade. Norway prospered, through trade with Scotland and Ireland, with the Kievan Rus, even with the Byzantine Empire, where Harold, of course, still had plenty of connections. So even though he was a bit of a prick, you can't deny that Harold did do Norway a fair bit of good as king. But now, exalted listener, we come to the final chapter of Harold Hadrada's story. His invasion of England, which of course took place in 1066, that fateful year in which the destiny of England, Great Britain, the United Kingdom, and indeed the course of human history would be so strongly shaped. I know it sounds absurdly Anglo-centric to say this sort of thing, but it it's true. The fact that English, the language that you and I speak, is an international lingua franca, this is clear evidence of the enormous role that England has played in world affairs, especially in more recent centuries. And 
1066 was the year in which the fate of England was decided, and Harold Hadrada played a big role in deciding that fate. After agreeing to the very gentlemanly draw with Spain of Denmark, Harold accepted the fact that he would never conquer Denmark, and so instead decided to take a different path to claiming his North Sea Empire. He decided, in the grand tradition of his people, the Vikings, to invade England. He had a claim to the English throne, a legitimate claim. Canute's son, Hartha Canute, had passed a claim to Magnus the Good when he died in 1042, and when Magnus the Good died in 1047, Harold decided that he had inherited not just sole dominion over Norway from Magnus, but also Magnus's claim to the crown of England. Tenuous, perhaps, but legitimate. And it was enough. It was enough for the current king of England, Edward the Confessor, to hint that he might just name Harold as his official heir, should he not attack England. Now, this was a trick that Edward the Confessor was pulling with a lot of people, Spain of Denmark for one, even even William of Normandy, right? And, And it worked. None of them attacked England until... Edward the Confessor died in early 1066, and instead of Harold or Svein or William, named a bloke called Harold Godwinson as his successor. Harold was crowned as Harold II of England, and to put it very mildly, a lot of people were mightily pissed off by this. Harold Hadrada made preparations to invade and claim the throne for himself. William of Normandy made preparations to invade and claim the throne for himself. Svein of Denmark didn't actually really do anything much at all. He waited until until 1069, weirdly enough. Anyway, Harold was approached as he prepared his invasion by Harold II's brother. This is getting really confusing. It's Harold and Harold. Hmm. Harold Hadrada was approached by Harold Godwinson's brother, Tostig, right? who offered to aid him in invading England, hoping to have his lands and titles restored to him should Harold Hadrada be successful. Harold Godwinson had exiled Tostig and confiscated his lands and titles, and he wanted them back. And Harold Hadrada was all too ready to accept the help from Tostig, and so he very gladly factored him in to the invasion plans that he was drawing up throughout the early months of 1066. By September, everything was ready. And so Harold Hadrada set off. He stopped in and picked up more troops at Shetland and Orkney, which were back then part of Norway, before finally landing in Dunfermline in Scotland. Tostig had made an arrangement with King Malcolm III of Scotland for even more troops to be provided to Harold. The Scottish are never going to pass up an opportunity to help someone kick the asses of the English. And this brought Harold's total force to as many as 15,000 soldiers and 2,000 cavalrys, although there are some lower estimates kicking about as well. Anyway, Harold finally met up with Tostig in Tynmouth in the north of England, and his forces began to raid and pillage the English coastline, as the Vikings had been so proudly doing for hundreds of years. But these would be amongst the last ever Viking raids on England, because quickly approaching is, of course, the Battle of Stamford Bridge, and with it, the death of Harold Hadrada and the end of the Age of Vikings. In fact, the very last time in history that a Scandinavian army would beat an English army was at the Battle of Fulford on the 20th of September 1066 when Harold's army crushed the English as they attempted to defend the city of York. But this would be, as I say, the last victory that Vikings would ever score on English soil, and in a few days' time, the age of the Vikings would effectively be over. 
Because while Harold Hadrada was raiding up and down the coast, crushing the English up north, Harold Godwinson hadn't been sitting idly by waiting for his doom to arrive with William to the south and Harold to the north. In response to the mighty force of Vikings reaving their way through his newly inherited kingdom, he had mustered his own troops at great speed and marched them north to face the invaders. His forces marched almost 300 kilometres in just four days, an absolutely blistering pace, which took Harold and his Viking army completely by surprise. Harold Godwinson catches up with Harold Hadrada and his army. Harold is caught with his pants down, completely unprepared for battle. He has to scramble his troops and prepare to meet this English army that has seemingly appeared out of thin air. This forced march has done the trick. And as the two armies readied themselves to engage, the decisive Battle of Stamford Bridge began. Now, here's the thing. I've already talked about the Battle of Stamford Bridge before, back in episode 72, the Norman invasion of England get across it. So we're going to do something that we've never done before on the podcast here. I'm going to save you the time of scrolling all the way back through almost... 200 episodes to listen to that one bit of episode 72. And I'm also going to save myself the time of re-recording something that we've already gotten across. So we are going to go all the way back here, going all the way back to the 8th of December, 2019, back to episode 72. And we're going to have a listen to the description of the Battle of Stamford Bridge that I recorded back then over three and a half years ago. Efficient podcasting or lazy cop-out? You be the judge. From the half assed History Archives, here is my description of the Battle of Stamford Bridge. Shamelessly recycled content. No worries. Let's have a listen. According to historians that wrote about the battle, you know, not long after it took place in the years, in the years after it, here's what happened. As the armies met here, obviously uh, Hadrada has been caught by surprise, and he, he, he quickly tried. You know, both them manoeuvring, both both the armies manoeuvring to get in a position. But as they're doing this, a lone rider approached the Norwegian army. This is the story. This is the, you know this again. Not might not be one hundred percent true, but this is this is how the story goes here. A lone rider approached the Norwegian army and hailed Harold Hadrada and Tostig Godwinson. Now the rider didn't give his name or anything like that, but he offered Tostig an end to his exile and the restoration of his own titles if he would turn against Hadrada and join the uh, join the forces join the english forces there tostig then asked the rider he said what what will hadrada receive if i you know if i say yes to this uh, this proposal and the rider said he will receive 7 feet of english ground as he is taller than other men before turning and riding back to the english army can you imagine that when hadrada then asked, asked Tostig who the writer was. Tostig turned to him and said, that was my brother. That was Harold Godwinson himself. Talk about sending a bloody message. The guts of this bloke riding out by himself to meet with the enemy, demanding his brother's capitulation and then promising Hadrada seven feet of English ground. What a power move. Unbelievable. Again, it may not be true or, you know, perhaps only based on truth, but it's a bloody good story. And uh, anyway... 
Obviously, a last-minute peace deal was off the table, and so the armies, they swiftly drew up into battle formations. The Norwegians, they arranged themselves in a, in a defensive circle. They concentrated their heavy infantry at this namesake bridge to defend the choke point for the English advance, advances over the river. Uh, and the story goes that they deployed a, an enormous axeman, this uh, this bloke, this huge, big, great big bloke there, who single-handedly held up the English army by slaying 40 soldiers as they attempted to cross the bridge over the River Derwent there. And this axeman apparently was only brought down down when an English soldier got into a barrel, floated down the river underneath the bridge, and then used a spear to stab up through the uh, the bridge planks to kill him with the old crafty sneak attack there. Now, once again, this might be a bit of creative license on the part of the historians from back then, but, but again, on the other hand, what a bloody good story. It does make me think, though, we sort of look back and go, oh, you know, these bloody stupid idiot historians back then, why couldn't they just tell the actual truth instead of fanning about with all the stupid bloody exaggeration and and, and whatever else they get up to? And then I realised that I do exactly the same thing. Like, I invent made-up dialogue in half of these stupid podcasts. So, you know, if I'm to be if I'm to be believed based on half-assed history, you know, there's ancient Roman nobles going around, you know, they used to address each other by saying, you know, big fella and old mate and all that sort of stuff. So I'm, I'm just as guilty of it. So, you know, I've just definitely, I've de- I definitely had to renew or re- re- revisit my, uh, my opinion of that sort of thing. Anyway, the delay that the English faced in crossing the river, it allowed the Norwegians to form a shield wall. And once the English were all across, uh, the battle began in earnest. It was a long and it was a hard-fought battle, but the Norwegians were uh, were slowly and surely beaten down by the English. They were, the English were said to be better armoured than their enemies. Um, there was a late surge of reinforcements for the Norwegians, about 3,000 or so troops that had been left guarding the ships, uh, you know, raced to the battlefield, but it wasn't enough. The English won the day, and the few remaining Norwegian survivors, they routed and they fled. The Norwegian death toll was staggering. There were about 9,000 troops that had taken part in the battle, apparently, and over 8,000 of them were killed. Less than 1,000 survivors remained. It was an absolute massacre. And this included, uh, you know, two of the people that were killed, Tostig and Harold Hadrada. So it was a complete and utter victory there. It was, I mean, so complete was Harold's victory that he was able to force the surviving Norwegians to swear never to attack England again before being sent back to their ships to sail back home. So that is the story of the Battle of Stamford Bridge and the end of Harold Hadrada. And the end, of course, was nigh for Harold Godwinson too. He would be killed a few weeks later in the Battle of Hastings after William the Conqueror invaded. But you will have to scroll back through 200 old episodes to listen to that part of the story. Anyway, Harold Hadrada died in the Battle of Stamford Bridge, as I mentioned, struck in the throat by an arrow quite early on, apparently, which... Wouldn't have been good for his army's morale. And what remained of his army after their defeat limped home. Norway was then divided between his two sons, named Olaf and Magnus, just to make things properly confusing for us these days. You know, how many bloody Olafs and Magnuses have we had to deal with over the past two episodes? Bloody hell. Anyway, there's an interesting story about what happened to Harold's body after his death. Uh, It was repatriated to Norway a year after the Battle of Stamford Bridge, and it was buried in Trondheim before later being dug up and reinterred about a century later. And the priory in which Harold was finally reburied was later demolished. And then, at some point many years later, a road was built over it. So Harold Hadrada's bones currently, today, rest under a stretch of Norwegian tarmac. And the Trondheim local government has no plans to do anything about this. In any case, the death of Harald Hadrada is generally, as I say, considered by historians to mark the end of the Age 
of Vikings. It's not completely because of his death that Vikings went into decline. It's just that his death serves as a conveniently timed historical marker to delineate a period of history coming to an end. After all, his campaign to invade England was the very last major Viking effort to conquer lands beyond Scandinavia. So even if his death wasn't the sole factor causing the end of the Viking era, it very neatly shows us when this end effectively took place. There were plenty of other factors, all of them intertwined with one another, none of them singularly responsible. I'll give you a brief rundown of some of these reasons. Number one, realms were becoming more politically consolidated. For instance, what had previously been a bunch of different petty kingdoms, Mercia, Wessex, Northumbria, was now unified as England. And these consolidated realms defended themselves much more effectively from Viking raids, making these raids riskier and less profitable as people were better prepared to deal with them. And relatedly to this, wealth, one of the primary motivators for these raids happening in the first place, wealth was much easier to come by through means other than raiding and pillaging. I mentioned how Harald Hadrada entered Norway into the world of international commerce with a new coin economy. There was so much less incentive to raid and pillage and kill for wealth when you could just sail around and buy and sell stuff instead. Vikings, as skilled long-distance sailors, could make a figurative killing rather than a literal one, transporting trade goods great distances and raking in great profits. Additionally, the spread of Christianity also resulted in the decline of Viking activity as Scandinavian realms underwent cultural and religious changes as they were more fully absorbed into European Christendom. Viking culture, for better or worse, was subsumed by Christianity and as part of that process, the raids and invasions of other Christian lands also began to wind down. In reality, the age of the Vikings ended gradually. Right, as these changes and plenty of others besides slowly phased out traditional Viking activity. But I think it's still fair to use the death of Harald Hadrada, the last great Viking, to broadly show us when the Viking era ended. Harald Hadrada was the archetypical Viking, a strong, skilled warrior, ruthless and uncompromising, very deserving of the epithet that history has given him, the hard ruler. A talented military commander with years of experience, he also managed to be an effective, if cruel and ruthless king, but he never managed to reforge Canute's North Sea Empire. While he managed to take Norway, he never conquered Denmark and his invasion of England cost him his life. All the same, his actions have echoed throughout history. His defeat at Stamford Bridge played a huge role in Harold Godwinson's defeat at the Battle of Hastings, putting William the Conqueror on the throne and beginning Norman rule in England. Without the invasion of Harold Hadrada, perhaps Harold Godwinson would have repelled William's invasion, and perhaps the House of Godwin would rule England to this very day. But instead... His army, exhausted after their march up and down the country to face Harald Hadrada, was defeated by William the Conqueror, who went on to become, of course, the King of England. And today, a familial line can be traced from him to the current British monarch, all the way 
from William the Conqueror to Charles the Sausage-Fingered, almost 1,000 years later. But setting aside English history, Harald Hardrada also had a profound impact on Norwegian history as a powerful, centralised ruler who consolidated and modernised his kingdom. Norway flourished in the wake of Harald, with a long period of peace and stability lasting into the 12th century and the kingdom entering a golden age in the 13th century as a strong, wealthy and fiercely independent nation. He wasn't a very nice bloke, but Harald Hadrada was nonetheless a very important one. Someone who well and truly made his mark on history as the last great Viking. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Harold Hardrada. And I do hope you've enjoyed getting across some Viking history over the last couple of weeks. It's been fascinating to do it. Next week, we will perhaps move on to some other topics. I've got some, I've got some good stuff coming down the pipeline. Don't you worry about that. So I hope you'll, uh, you'll join me for more Half-Ass History in the coming weeks. But until then, of course, all the boring normal housekeeping stuff coming your way. Halfasshistory.net contact form there. Get in touch. Like all these people who did to ask for Harold Hardrada or, you know, a bit of Viking history. Frank, Tobias, Courtney, Justin, Magnus. Thanks to all... Bloody Magnus is... Magnus, can't, get, can't get away from it. Magnus is everywhere. Bloody hell. Anyway, thanks to all of the alert listeners getting in touch every week. I can't reply to all the emails I get, but I do read every single one of them very gratefully indeed. So if you want to send an email, please do. It's great to hear from you. If you want to support the show directly, of course, you can do this in a number of ways. You can buy merch at the merch shop. The link is uh, there at the website. Or you can go to patreon.com slash history and sign up to the Patreon. Uh, and in doing so, you'll gain access to all sorts of bonus content, behind the scenes stuff, exclusive merch, and of course, at all tiers, ad-free listening. But even if you aren't a paid-up patron, even if you are just a freeloader, I would like to thank you all the same for listening to my Tin Pot History podcast every week. And I hope to see you back here next week, of course, for more nonsense. Tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell people about whom you feel largely ambivalent. We're going to close out the show now, of course, with a question posed on Reddit. This one comes to us from Redditor Grigri, who obviously has been paying attention to the archaeological evidence that uh, lends us so much information about the Viking era. Grigri asks, Why did the Vikings seem to only ever use sword spears and axes that were all rusty? <laughs>